Okay, cool. Let's take a look at this outline. We're on part three. Uh, <clears throat> today, I want to talk about the biblical narrative, a, a key point of the biblical narrative that ties together the idea of, of ceaseless devotion to the Lord, really from beginning to end. There's a common thread that runs through the entire scripture about night and day worship and prayer, and really ceaseless devotion that uh, you can kind of overlook if you're, if you're not paying attention. And, and so um, the Bible gives us clear understanding of God's desires, that God wants to be intimate with us. He wants to be in communion with us. He wants it to be unbroken and unceasing communion and intimacy. That's what God wants. And uh, what happens is this, when we look at the biblical story, a lot of times we, we get familiar with individual Bible stories, but we're, we're a little bit uh, distant from the Bible story. You see what I'm saying? We, we know about like, you know, Noah and the ark or, or, or Moses and the Ten Commandments or, or the Red Sea or the Garden of Eden. We, like we know the stories but a lot of times we miss how they fit together. And that's one of my passions really in studying the Bible is to see how what's happening in the scripture actually fits in the broader storyline. That's called biblical theology. It's short understanding the narrative of the Bible. Well, here's one of the things that's just so fascinating to me is the concept of night and day worship and prayer. It's, it's a clear thread that runs all the way from Genesis through the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to track every king that you know, practiced night and day worship and prayer in, in their kingdom or anything like that. But what I want to do today is I want to talk about our identity. I want to talk about who you are, who I am, who God made us to be. I want to look at the garden. I want to look at the, the, the first way that God made man. And I want us to understand what God was doing in that garden. Um, so often we can look at the story of the Garden of Eden, we kind of go, huh, Adam, Eve, garden, you know, uh, snake, it was talking, that's a bad snake, it's a thought, if a snake comes to you and it's talking, don't talk back to it, words of wisdom. Uh, you know, they, they listen to the snake, they rebel against God, it, they ate an apple or something, it was a fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They end up not in the garden anymore. Bummer, Adam, you blew it. You know, and so we kind of just go, ah, darn. Garden of Eden story, it's where everything went bad. Well, there's way more going on in the Garden of Eden. There's way more going on in that creation story than we tend to understand. And that's what I want to do today. I want to look at it. I want to unpack it a bit. Uh, I don't want to get overly technical, but I do want to unpack it a little bit so that we can understand the, the original intention that God had for man and what God was doing with Adam and Eve in that garden, man, it should inform us and in how we think about really the story of creation, the story of humanity, our own identity, the role that we play you know, in God's kingdom, how we relate to the Lord, how we think of ourselves, it really does have the ability to inform everything about our lives if we understand what was going on in the garden. And so I, I, wanna, I wanna look at that really strongly today. Um, you know, we could simply think of it as just this idea of God's original dealings with man and that from there, hopefully it would get better and then we would, we would become what God had hoped we would become. But I would just say it differently. I believe what Adam and Eve were in the garden actually is the original intent for humanity that was lost, that now we're on our way back to entering back you know, into that reality. Does that make sense? He didn't create us in a state of, well, we'll just make them better as they go. We'll just improve upon it. He actually created us in a state of, of perfection and unbroken fellowship that then was severed, and then we've been on the way back to that relationship in the garden ever since. And so um, sometimes we can view the garden as kind of this sort of beginning, it's sort of foundational, but I would say it's, it's actually a real picture of God's God's full design. And so I'm gonna deal with the issue of priesthood today. I wanna talk about that. 
And, and really, I wanna inform us of what this idea of being a kingdom of priests is even all about. So, I say all that in the introduction, A, B, C, and D. Let's look at Roman numeral two. Didn't you like how I did that? I didn't reference even one of them. Well, all the people that want all the points, they want me to read every point. But the people that are like, oh man, don't read the points. I just give it all to you right there. How about that? That's not bad for jet lag, folks. Come on now. All right, here we go. Here we go. So let's take a look back at the Garden of Eden. Let's revisit it, okay? So what do you think of when you picture the Garden of Eden? In your mind, what do you draw up? What do you imagine? Garden of Eden, what? Sort of got Adam and Eve there. Bunch of animals. Had to name a lot of animals. I did the math on it one time, found the whole fossil record because I like to do things like this. If Adam named all the animals in the fossil record, which it says he named all the animals, then it's like if he worked like 10 to 12 hour days and took one day off a week, it would have taken him like two and a half years just to name the animals. That doesn't count the birds and the reptiles and the insects. So he was naming animals for quite some time. Anyway, that's a little side point. So what do you picture when you think of the garden? I've, in the past, I've described it as a place of glory and beauty and wonder, majesty, a place where there is no curse. I don't know that we really get it. You know, I, I, I um, have told a story in the past about when my wife and I, we, we had one of our anniversaries, we, we were fortunate, uh, fortunate enough to go to Hawaii and we went to Maui and I remember that first night when we were driving, we just got there, and when we were driving, uh, the sun, it just begins to set, just begins to dip in the ocean, and it went, once it began to hit the horizon, it like exploded, and the color was just, I mean, it was fantastic. It was like, I, I mean, just a, 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 a canvas that a, a painter had had just painted, it was amazing. I literally pulled my car over and fully did the tourist thing. I pulled my car over, pulled my camera out, and I was taking pictures. And I'm sitting there thinking, why isn't anybody else taking pictures of this, you know? And of course, because they have sunsets like that like every single night. And, uh, and then I remember <clears throat> revisiting that in my mind, thinking that sunset is the cursed version of a sunset. <laughs> What were the sunsets in the garden like? I mean, Adam and Eve, this place of romance. God puts them in a garden with smells and sights and sounds and wonder and beauty. Sunsets and the birds are singing. And, and I mean, you know, I, I, I like to talk about the, the fruit. What's the uncursed version of the fruit? You know, you, you know they get a grape. They eat it and it explodes all over them. They got to take a shower because the fruit is so, you know, buoyant with, with juice and flavor. And I mean, you, you've had awesome spring fruit or fall fruit where it's just been amazing and just perfect. And that's a cursed version. Everything we've ever seen or tasted or touched in, in our lives in this age is actually under a curse because of the original sin of the garden. So what was it like when the curse wasn't there yet? What, what was the creation like that God put Adam and Eve in? It had to have been something that was absolutely beyond wonder. Fantastic. Well, of course it was. God wasn't gonna make a fixer-upper to start with. He didn't start with a foreclosure. <laughs> Come on. He started with something that was magnificent. He started with something that was perfect, beautiful, wondrous. And so there they are. And I've described the garden in that way, this place of wonder and beauty, no curse. They lived in unveiled intimacy with God and with one another. They didn't experience any shame with one another. We see that they were actually naked and unashamed. The Bible says they were completely without the sense of fear, shame, pain on their soul. They felt, you know, physical pains. If you touch, if you touch something, you, you feel that, you know, hurt, you, that, that's in there to help you, but not on their soul. Their soul was completely free. You imagine, completely free, no sense of 
anything bearing upon them in a negative way, just intimacy with God, free-hearted with one another. Can you imagine what it must have been like when Adam disobeyed, when he ate the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil in that very first moment when darkness just came across him? I mean, the icy cold grip of sin, I mean, it just begins to strangulate the life of God in him. And he realizes something most horrifying. The most horrifying thing has happened. He's lost intimacy with God. He's lost that sense of freedom and wonder. So that's the garden, this beautiful place. Um, You know, the Bible gives us hints of this wonder in the life that's in the garden. I like to say it this way. It was fully animate with the glory of God, fully animate with the life and the glory of God. But what do you actually picture? Sometimes we just think of it as a plot of land over there in Mesopotamia, near the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, which Genesis chapter two tells us. But here's what I wanna say in C under two, this is what I wanna say. I wanna propose a thought to you about the garden that maybe you've never heard before. I propose that the garden was actually far grander than anything you and I have ever pictured, even what I just described What it actually was, I want to propose, dwarfs that idea. I want to propose that the the garden wasn't anything really about a farm. Because so often we think garden, you think, you know, when you say garden in our time, we think those four rows of vegetables you got in your backyard. We're like, oh, so God took Adam and he put him in somebody's backyard. And he had some cabbage, some carrots, some, you know corn, cucumbers, and potatoes. And and that's what God told him to do, like get out some gardening tools and tend that thing. Uh, I wanna propose this, that it it wasn't really even about it being like a farm it wasn't really even about uh, you know, him being like a gardener, like a farmer, or even a florist, um, or horticulturalist. I wanna propose this, the garden was actually the first sanctuary slash tabernacle slash temple that God created for man and him, for God and man to meet together in that it was far more than some little plot of land with vegetables, but it was actually a sanctuary that it, that it had a, a completely different feeling and, and a completely different sort of um, uh, structure than anything that you and I you know, ordinarily picture. Now, it's in the garden that God puts Adam and then he gives him those first instructions. And, and when we just look at the placement of Adam in this garden and we look at those first instructions, we actually get from the Bible clear evidence that this thing was a sanctuary and that Adam's role was far different than being a farmer or being just a gardener. Now, why is that important to us? Because in our minds, we don't think the Garden of Eden is far away, but it's what I said a minute ago. You know, yes, it's historically a bit distant, but God's first intention for man is seen in the Garden of Eden. And so when we stare at God's first intention for man, here's the deal. We get informed of who we are. And I feel like one of the main broken areas of humanity is this, that we've been identified by so many things that are not actually God's intention for us. We've been identified, I mean, so often and mostly identified by just our job. You know, what we do. And so often people, they they, say, "So, so what are you about? Well, I'm a fill in the blank, fill in the job. And, and uh, you know, having a job is, is awesome. I mean, we, we, we all want to have work and be productive. And, but, but here's the thing, working and being productive doesn't give us identity. You gotta hear this. What the produce of our hands is, that doesn't give us identity. My identity is not wrapped up in being a a leader, a pastor, a preacher, or any of that. That's not my identity. My identity is one who is loved by God. 
And there's a deeper reality that God wants us to catch about our identity. And he wants us to look at it and see in that original creation, what was the identity that he gave Adam? And by extension, what is our identity? And when we catch this, I'm telling you, it changes the way you think about everything. It changes everything. Because at the core of who we are, our identity is far more than what we do. All right, Roman numeral three. Let's go ahead and flip on over to that. Top of page two. And just to show you that I'm not coming up with this off the top of my head, I wanna give some biblical evidence that the garden was actually a sanctuary. Um, There's several things I could walk us through, theologically speaking, and there's several commentators that believe that the garden was a sanctuary, but let me just give you the most clear one. I'll just give you the clearest point where the Bible actually calls the Garden of Eden a sanctuary. It actually says it's a sanctuary, a tabernacle. So it's here in Ezekiel 28 when, when uh, the prophet is, is talking about how Lucifer, the Lord is speaking through the prophet saying how Lucifer defiled his sanctuaries. And when you look at this statement in context, what you find is that the Garden of Eden is actually mentioned as a sanctuary that Lucifer defiled. Interesting. And there it is right there in Ezekiel 28, 13. The Lord speaking, Lucifer says, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities by the iniquity of your trading. And he makes the connection that this garden was a sanctuary. When you read commentators on this passage, they all argue the same thing, that the garden, not every single last commentator, but many, many of them argue the exact same thing, that the garden was actually the first sanctuary that God ever created. It was the first tabernacle. It was the first temple. It was the first place of meeting between God and man. Now that's really, really interesting because think about the thread of the Bible. Think about the story of the way that God works in the scripture. Remember we have the garden and then there's sin and they're removed from the garden and then God you know, brings forth Israel, right? And he brings them out to Mount Sinai what that they might worship him. And then on Mount Sinai, what does God give to Moses? He gives him blueprints to do what? To make a sanctuary because God wants to dwell among men, right? And then we have the the story of Israel and their ups and downs and their sojourns. Uh, Eventually that tabernacle becomes a temple that the Lord gave David blueprints on And it's built by Solomon. So we go from the tabernacle to the temple, right? And last time we were together, we talked about how Jesus shows up in the the rebuilt temple courts and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a place of intimacy between God and man, but you've made it a den of thieves. He goes, where is the communion? My father and I want to fellowship with humanity, right? And then at the cross, remember when Jesus was crucified, the veil of the temple was ripped in two. The Holy Spirit began at that point to indwell people who believe in Jesus. And now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's always been looking for a place to dwell and tabernacle with people. The story of creation is so clear about that. Even when Jesus returns, the Bible is absolutely clear that he will rule and reign from Jerusalem and he will rule and reign in the temple. It will be rebuilt on, in Jerusalem. It will be rebuilt on that temple mount. He'll, rebuild, he'll, he'll rule and reign from that sanctuary. So interesting to me that God from beginning to end creates sanctuaries. Now here we are, Ephesians chapter two tells us that the church, not the facility, the people are being built together as living stones 
a holy dwelling place of God. We are together the tabernacle now. Amazing how the Lord did this. He actually creates meeting spaces. Well, the garden was the first one. The first place that he made for man and God to dwell together. And that Ezekiel passage says it really clearly that the garden was one of these sanctuaries that was defiled by Lucifer. So here's the thing. And I, and I begin to walk through this in C and D. And I'll just read the quote there in D from InterVarsity. But, but here's something we've then now got to get in our minds. I was expanding on what you might picture when you think of garden. I was talking about giant fruit and you know, beautiful sunsets. And I, I, I like a, to think of even the life of God flowing through everything, even the creation being alive in a different way, just more than organically alive, but alive, uh, alive with the glory of God. You know, I imagine the, uh, the creation actually animate with life. Um, we have these passages that just give us little hints, like talking about when the Lord returns, the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean in the garden they're like, we like it? I mean, the trees potentially were animate with the life of God at the beginning. I imagine the, the grass massaging the feet, not just good grass, but like really actually doing the thing. Alive with the life of God. You know, you hear birds singing, and it's, it sounds like they're singing a song, right? They are, right? But, but I, I've, I've kind of just wondered, this is just me now, this isn't the Bible. But, you know, I, I said it earlier, if a snake comes talking to you, it's a bad snake, you need to run away. But here's the deal. Adam didn't freak out when it talked. What am I saying? Am I saying Mr. Ed was in the garden? What I'm saying is, it may have been that animals actually had a communication the way, a way that they communicate. I'm just saying, first, that's Billy Humphrey. That's not, that's not the Bible. It's my opinion. But I think that could be that the reason why the snake didn't freak him out was because it was talking. And so were other animals, and that's how it was. The point is this. It's more than that, though, more than this animate place when you look at ancient gardens, which all would have gotten their, they would have gotten their creative ideas from the original garden, what you find is this, that they're places with structure and pathways. They're, they're places with pillars and chambers and waterways. They're, they're, they're expansive places where where ancient kings used to have a place for them to go and rest and to reside. And they would oftentimes put those uh, ancient gardens that would be these st uh, structural, phenomenal, structurally phenomenal places, they put them right next to their palace. And so that they could go and reside there in the garden, be a place to bring visitors and guests and a place of communion. And so gardens uh, in the ancient world were fantastic. They were they were, they were massive. They, they had structure and, 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 and building edifices and, and, and they were just a completely different deal. They had gates and, and they were just a completely different thing than what we're used to, to experiencing. And so like if you've ever been, how many's ever been to Biltmore? Been to the Biltmore house in North Carolina? Several. If you've ever been there, you know that those gardens are like the most phenomenal thing you've, you've ever seen in garden world. I mean, they are just expansive and huge and there's facilities and structures. And um, if, you'll, if you've ever heard of the uh, ancient Babylon hanging gardens, it kind of gives us a picture of what the Garden of Eden may have looked like. This thing had structure and it was a facility. It was more than four rows of cabbage in your backyard. Glory to God. Look at this quote from InterVarsity, just so you don't think I'm making this stuff up. Next, we need to understand, this is <clears throat> InterVarsity talking about the, the creation. Next, we need to understand the designation garden. The word generally refers to a park-like setting featuring trees and what we would call landscaping. We could call landscaping. This is in contrast to the American usage of garden which more often than not refers to a small rectangular plot of ground with rows of vegetables or flowers. In the same way that a garden, 
of a palace would be adjoining the palace. Eden would be the source of, of waters and the residence of God. And the garden would be adjoined to the God's residence. Gardens of this variety were a common feature in place in palace complexities in the ancient world. They were planted with fruit trees and shade trees and generally contained water courses, pools, and paths. And so this garden, that when we think of the Garden of Eden, I want you to catch it. This thing was a sanctuary. It was, it was a place of meeting between God and man. So E, this is where I want to get to. If this thing was a sanctuary, what does that inform us regarding Adam's role? What was his job? I don't know how you've pictured Adam, but what do you think his job was if this thing was a tabernacle or a sanctuary? It kind of begs the question, was he a farmer? I would propose no. I would say he wasn't just a farmer. Was he in charge of taking care of the place? For sure, he's in charge of tending it. But being a farmer was probably way down on the list. This thing was a different environment entirely. And so let's look at Adam. And I have it here in Romans, I mean, uh, Roman numeral four. Adam was the first priest. Now this is a big point. So look at this, Genesis chapter two, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. Now the word used for put, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. That word used for put, it literally means set to rest. He set him to rest. And so this is the same word used in the Old Testament to describe God's Sabbath rest and his desire for a resting place, for a place to tabernacle. And I flip on over. <clears throat> Look at B. This is a little technical, but just follow me for a minute. Whenever this word put is used with the Hebrew word for tend. Whenever those two are used together, every time that is used, those two words are used together in the Old Testament, it refers either to the Israelites serving God and keeping his commandments or to the priests who serve the Lord and guard his sanctuary. Those two words together give us a completely different idea than someone tending a farm. They're actually talking about someone serving the Lord in a priestly role. In fact, it's the, the way the priests were described as tending the sanctuary. God put them there to tend. It's exactly what he did with Adam. He put Adam in a priestly role there in that garden sanctuary. Now, I don't know what you thought of Adam and Eve in that story. I, I know probably you thought the same way I did for years. It's just a simple thing, you know, this guy with some land and he's got his wife and the snake and now we can't go in this row of hedge, you know, this hedge row anymore. Like I just pictured, I don't know what you pictured. I just pictured like a, a row of hedges, right? And he's sitting in there and I don't know, flowers, I don't know, and then, you know, maybe as big as this room or something, and then he's kicked out. Darn. Not at all the deal. This thing was a, a temple, a tabernacle, a sanctuary. Adam was the first priest, and God himself dwelt there with Adam. He would come in that place. He would walk in that place, and, and, and that, that term, when it talks about how God walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden, that term walking in the midst is the same term that was used in describing the children of Israel when they were sojourning in the wilderness and God would walk in the midst of the camp. He was tabernacling there. He was dwelling there. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Humanity was created as priests. God made Adam a priest and that first intention, that first design that we see in Adam by God making him a priest, telling him to tend the sanctuary, putting him in that, that sanctuary, that first design, it informs us of who we are, beloved. 
You're not just a doctor, lawyer, teacher, mailman, whatever, waiter, waitress. You are created to be a priest, to tend a, a tabernacle for the dwelling place of God. Now, we love to say that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll just give this to you quickly. There's one verse in the New Testament that identifies us individually as temples, but the broader thrust of the New Testament is that we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit, okay? Yeah, you're born again, yes, the Holy Spirit does dwell in you, yes, 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 you are an individual temple, but the broader way that the New Testament describes us is that we are being built together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And so here's this identity thing that I want you to get. It's, I mean, who we are in God is far grander than any occupation you'll ever hold. The, the, the best thing about me in terms of what I do is not my preaching, it's my singing. I know you might not appreciate it. But it's true. You know why? Because when I sing, I ain't singing for you. <laughs> I'm not singing for you. I'm singing for him. And there's something that I touch when I'm singing for him that it's it's right there down in the core. I, I know it's who I am. In the core of my being, I know that's who I am. I'm really an amazing worship leader in the shower and in my car. I'm glorious in those two places. It's, it's, it's heavenly. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can't quite pass the audition for our platform, but I'm telling you, there is another scale that God sees and God cares about. And there's, there's, a, there's something of the first identity that, that I tap into when I sing to him. And the same is true of you. People say, well, I'm not a singer. Yes, you are. You are, because God made you to sing. He, he made you to worship. He, he made you to pray. He, he, he made you to love. How do I know that? Because I know this. He made you a priest. He made you a priest. Before anything else, you're a priest unto God. And so we have this entire biblical narrative about priests. And what's hard for us is this. We, so we go, okay, I want to learn about the priests, right? And then you end up in Leviticus, and you end up like bogged down in like animal sacrifices and like blood all over everything and like some giant, you know, headdress and stones everywhere. And who can remember all that anyway? Like, and so you get, you know, you get like, you're gonna like, you get the like motivation. I'm gonna study the priesthood. And like two hours in, you're like, this is horrible. I don't wanna do this anymore. Because you're, you're bogging down in the form that was used with the children of Israel. And the whole point of that form was to, to, for God to communicate a set-apartedness. Remember, remember when God invited him out to Sinai? And he said, he said everybody come out. He said, he said, sanctify yourselves. This is Exodus 19. He said, sanctify yourselves. Don't go near your wives for three days. He said, purify everything and then come out and, and I will come down to meet all of you. It wasn't just Moses. So they all come out. God speaks audibly. And when he speaks audibly, 2.2 million people hear the 10 commandments with their own ears. That's Exodus 20. And when they hear the thunder and they see the lightning and the, the explosions on Mount Sinai, they say, we can't take this 
God's too much. Moses, you go talk to him. We'll go back to being normal. It's wild because if you read the narrative of in Exodus 19, God invites them all to be a kingdom of priests. They all say they will. And then they, it's what we always do. We always sign up for stuff that we just, we, we sign up for stuff that we can't, we can't carry out. We're not willing to cash that check, so to speak. And when they actually see what they've signed up for, which is to be intimate with the uncreated God, the God of infinity, the God of fire and wonder and beauty and majesty, when they see that they've signed up for that, oh, it shocks them to the core. See, they've got only a picture of little idols that don't speak, right? These little animals that are golden images that don't do anything. And when, when the God comes down, when, when Jehovah comes down and unveils himself, and he, that wasn't like God on 10, that was like God on .0001. When he unveils himself, they can't take it. So 2.2 million people walk away and Moses walks in, right? And the people say, you talk to God and we'll listen to you. And it's from there that God actually sets up the Levites as a, 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 you know, and the sons of Aaron as a priesthood. But that was never his original intention. His original intention is what, that a whole nation would be priests, that an entire people would be priests. Why did he want a whole nation to be priests? Because he wanted the whole world to be priests. So in Christ, you get born again, he cleanses you, he gives you access to what? The throne room. Who gets access to the throne room of God? Who had access in the tabernacle and in the temple? Priests. It's who you are. You've access because he's bringing us back to the original intention. Am I communicating? This is who you are. You're one destined for intimacy with God. That's what he made you to be. He didn't make you to be the cursed version, this toiling by the sweat of your brow, identified by your job person. He made you to be a priest. And in Christ, he's restored that first intention. It's clear as a bell. When you look at the, the verses, I, right here, D. Exodus 19, God says to Israel, you'll be a kingdom of priests. But first Peter says to the redeemed in the new covenant, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. It's who we are with access to God. And I just don't want you to get bogged down in the picture of the Levites and the sons of Aaron. Go back and look at Adam in the garden with God in intimacy in the cool of the day with nothing in the way, with no shame. That's who you're supposed to be. That's who we're supposed to be, beloved. When you catch that original intention for humanity, it speaks to your entire identity. We don't have to go back to an identity that's less than what God has made us to be. Does that mean that we don't do work? No, we do work, but we do it from a different orientation. Our orientation is that we are created to be priests to God first, and then from that identity, everything else flows. From that place of intimacy, that place of, of communion, everything in life is supposed to flow. I, I put Revelation 1.6 there because this, I, I wanna just give you this little piece. When John writes the book of Revelation, of course, he writes the book, he puts the book together after he has this amazing encounter. 
He was taking notes the entire time, and then he puts it together. And when you study the book, you find this. He's got an introduction or a prologue, and at the end, he's got an epilogue, and he's got the whole encounter inside the book. Well, in the prologue, what's interesting is in verse six, you find this. He's looking and he's thinking about this encounter he just had that shows the end of all things. He sees, he sees the bride made ready, and he's thinking back of everything he just saw, and he describes it in verse six, and he says, He's made us a kingdom of priests. In other words, John sees the end of it and he goes, man, God's gonna restore the original intention for humanity. Oh, beloved, there's an identity that we're supposed to be operating in that will absolutely transform the way that we live day in and day out. I don't know how you identify yourself. I don't know, I don't know what you think of yourself. I know for sure who you are it's not what you do. It's just not what you do. Who you are is far more than what you do. Who you are is one that's loved by God, created to be intimate with God. That's why he made you priests. Last thoughts, Roman numeral five. I, I say it again there in A. We need to digest a critical truth. The most foundational expression of humanity is that we were firstly created to be priests in purpose, identity, and action. It's who you are. I just wanna um, clarify something. There's a teaching that goes, that goes around in the body of Christ uh, that some people are called to be kings, business people, and other people are called to be priests, ministry people. That is not true. That's, that's not biblical. That's a completely non-biblical idea. We're all called to be priests. Now, our vocations are all different. Glory to God. But the idea was that God would have priestly people in the marketplace, priestly people in government, priestly people in entertainment, priestly people in ministry, and that from that place of priestliness, where we're firstly operating in intimacy and communion with God, then we would do whatever the job is that we're, we're, we're given to do vocationally. And we would show the world what it's like for a people who have access and intimacy with God, what it's like for us to live that way. It's supposed to pervade our marriages, it's supposed to pervade our workplace. Priest, a kingdom of priests. Not kings, some people who make money and priests, other people who spend it or whatever that is. It's not how it's supposed to be. We're all supposed to be priests. We're all supposed to be priests. Does that make sense? So this is what we're firstly created to be in purpose, identity, and action. And it's from that place that we move out into all the other activities of our lives. Ministering to God is a starting point <clears throat> and all the other tasks are commissions and they're secondary in life. That should change how we think. Now, let me just show you this, I'm just wrapping up. When you think about Adam being put in the garden, set to rest in that place and given the task of tending the garden, and then he's commissioned to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. What we realize is this, that God was wanting Adam to multiply not just people. Like, it wasn't just go have a lot of people. Yes, he wanted, he wanted there to be a, a family and a lineage that came out of Adam, that's for sure. But, but here's the thing. He wanted the earth to be filled and subdued with something. Filled and subdued with something. With what? People who had a priestly identity, yes, and B, the atmosphere that was sitting in that garden. He wanted the earth to be subdued with that glorious place of intimacy and, and relationship with God, where people were operating in communion with God all over the globe, unhindered. What's interesting to me is this, the glory of the Lord filling the earth. We've heard the verses, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. We've got these verses, there's four or five times in scripture it says it explicitly. 
those verses are specifically talking about the first commission that God gave to Adam to subdue the earth. To subdue it with what? The glory that was in that first sanctuary. That place of encounter and intimacy. In in Numbers, I I don't have the verse here in the notes, but it's interesting because in Numbers 14, after Israel has rejected God and they say, we all wanna go back to to, uh, Egypt. Moses has finished his second 40-day fast in like three months. (laughs) And, uh, And they say, we don't even know what happened to him. Let's just go back. And, uh, and then the Lord comes down and corrects them and, and Moses makes intercession. Right there in the middle of all of it, the Lord just says this, as I live, the earth will be filled with my glory. Why would he say that right there? Because the nation that he had just commissioned to be priests was rejecting him, but he said, you know what? Your rejection isn't gonna thwart my plan that the whole earth will be subdued that all the nations will be priests and that my glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. He actually makes the statement right in the middle of Israel's rebellion. It's, it's stunning. Here's the thing I'm trying to get us to. You and I are priests. That first commission to fill the earth and subdue it was always intended to be this idea of the atmosphere of the garden going forth across the, the entire nations, all the eight nations, And ultimately that all nations would be priests unto God. We we actually enter into that through the the cross, through Jesus. Last thoughts. On on page four, I, I identify this. When we see now the first and second commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, what we realize is the first and second commandment that Jesus gave are definers of what it means to live As priests, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see that? Do you see that? Firstly, intimacy with God, and from that place, boom, ministering to others, serving others. Your vocation, whatever you do, it flows out of that place. That that first and second commandment, it's, it's it's a priestly idea. When Jesus returns, he's gonna actually fully accomplish this commission that God initially gave to Adam. The whole earth is gonna be filled with worship and the glory of the Lord is gonna cover the earth as waters cover the sea. That's what's gonna happen when the Lord returns. This planet is gonna be filled with glory and every nation, tribe and tongue is gonna worship him. What does that mean? That means all the nations of the earth are gonna enter into their identity as priests. This is where it's going. Malachi 1.11, a prophecy of what it will look like when the Lord returns from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name for my name will be great among the nations. There's the uh, Numbers 14 verse. Truly as I live, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. There it is again in Habakkuk, talking about the day the Lord returns. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Now, what's the application to us? Of course, it's how we live. Of course, it's, it's understanding our identity in a different way. Of course, it's, it's how we live day in and day out. Let me ask you, as a business person, as, as a mom, as a ministry person, do you live firstly from that place of intimacy? You know, we, we talked about several weeks ago how, man, we're in this crazy spot in our nation and and didn't it just get crazier this past weekend? It's like every single day, there's more craziness. When I was in Australia, I literally had Australians, I mean, they all asked me, what's going on in your elections? But I literally had them going, we feel so good about our country now, looking at what's happening with you. Well, they had had five prime ministers in five years. Everyone was getting ousted. And they go, but we don't feel bad about ourselves at all anymore because America is in such a train wreck, wow. So thank you, I think. But there's, there's something about it that even in the midst of turmoil, trial, crisis, there's something we're supposed to carry 
that actually gets us up above even that. Even, even tribulation, even the end of the age, we're supposed to carry an identity as priests with access to his heart that calls us up out of those things and gives us a different perspective. We know that we have intimacy with him and from there, everything else flows. And so my, my, my ask for you is, are you living with intimacy? Are you living from that place of communion? Are you living there firstly? Or are you first, or, you know, sometimes what happens is we kind of know the thing. We know it, like I know I'm supposed to live the intimacy first, but I don't actually do it. Or are we firstly living from somewhere else? Are we living from the fires, the needs, the trials, the challenges, the to-do list? If you live from the to-do list, it will burn you out. I promise you, your to-do list can wait because your first identity is a priest. And sometimes it's upon us to just move things around a bit to make sure that we're entering into that identity firstly, that we're actually living as priests or we're moving our schedules around so that we can enter into that place. And here's what I wanna say, and how does this all relate to night and day worship and prayer? Because that's, that's what our series is about. When you see a place that does 24 seven worship and prayer and prioritizes worship and prayer above all the other activity of ministry, what you see is we're trying to, we're trying to live firstly in this identity as priests. We're trying to live firstly in the first commandment. We're trying to prioritize worship and prayer above everything else. And we're coming to hard conclusions. You think we would have learned this by now, we're 12 years in. But in our leadership meetings, we're coming to some hard conclusions right now. We can't do everything everyone else does. We can't do it as fast as they do it. We don't have the time, why? Because we take half of our time. All of our staff, we take half of our time and we minister to the Lord first. And as naturally foolish as that sounds, Man, there's just something down in the core of me that says, that's who I am. That's who I was made to be. Now, I'm not saying every person has to take half their time and firstly minister to the Lord, but I am saying this, that how you do your life will be radically impacted by how you see yourself. And if your identity is worker, servant, whatever, you will live firstly from that place. But if your identity is priest, bride, son, you'll live from that place. And that's who we're called to be, beloved. I'm telling you, the original intent that God had in the garden with Adam was that there'd be a whole, whole humanity would be a kingdom of priests. God's gonna have that. He's going to have that. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The whole earth will be filled. Every nation will worship him. That, that's not so God can just demand everybody to bow. That's so that everybody enters into their identity as ones who have access. And I said it earlier, we have access to the throne room because we're priests, but... <laughs> In Christ, what's amazing is it's, it's more than access just to his proximity, it's access to his person. We don't just have access to his throne room, we have access to his heart. That's who you are, that's who we are. And that's what I wanna call us to. People living firstly from that place, from that identity as priests before God, that first we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and from there we love others. But we really do the second, we just do the first one first. Amen?